I mean, all of these wrongful conviction cases, ultimately the system works. People do want to tell their stories. You break the law, there are consequences. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to True Crime and Consequences. I'm Kari. And I'm Brian. And we're a husband and wife who shoot the shit about true crime. And we are continuing our discussion of the Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey making a murderer case. And I believe we left off last week talking about my least favorite thing to talk about, which is Brendan's involvement and interrogations in the case, because it's just so damn depressing. Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? Yeah, it it really is. I'm sure people are going to piss and moan that I left stuff out, but honestly, Brendan is very difficult to talk about because I just love him, and he was just such a sweet, innocent kid, and the way they manipulated him and, in my opinion, abused him. Maybe I mean, obviously, they didn't like beat the crap out of him or anything, but I think they abused him mentally. Yeah, they didn't physically abuse him, but as we know, there are more types of abuse than that. And they obviously, the manipulation and the emotional manipulation that went on there was... Well, I wish I could say that it gets better after that, but the reality is it gets much, much worse. All right, so before we get started with today's episode, I want to wish a very, very happy 58th birthday to Stephen Avery. Happy birthday, Stephen. Happy birthday, Steve. I know you won't hear this until you are finally home with your family, if you ever hear it at all. But happy birthday, and I really hope you are making the best out of a really bad situation. Also, of note, uh, Stephen just recovered from COVID-19. He caught COVID-19 in prison. Oh. Unsurprisingly, considering... He's in Wapan Correctional Facility, and it, they had a huge outbreak in the facility. Luckily, he was only mildly symptomatic and seemed to come through it relatively quickly and unscathed. So that was good because I was very, very worried about that, given how some people aren't faring so well with the virus. And at his age, and I'm sure his health has taken a hit from spending so many years of his life in prison that I can't imagine his immune system is all that great. But um, he came through it, so that's good. And it's his birthday, so that's also good. And so, again, happy birthday, Steve. Uh, My love to you and the entire Avery family. So, anyway, I think we left off with charges being added to Stephen's case based on Brendan's quote-unquote confession. Right. Yeah. So he had originally when he was originally arrested, Stephen, when he was originally arrested on November 9th of 2005, he was only arrested and fell in possession of a weapon because they had found a firearm in his residence. And then shortly thereafter, on November 15th, the Calumet County Special Prosecutor, Kenneth Kratz, charged Stephen with first-degree intentional homicide, mutilation of a corpse, and more possession of firearms by a felon charges. And that was based on finding Teresa's vehicle on the Avery Salvage Yard property, finding the magic key in his bedroom, and finding his, supposedly, his blood inside Teresa's car. The RAV4. His blood? His blood. But not hers. 
There, her blood was in the car, but it was in the trunk. Okay. So, so it, we'll get into that when we get yeah. into the trial stuff. But that's yeah, fine. But his blood was found in a few smudges in the driver's side front of the car. So, like, there was a little smudge next to where the the key would go into the ignition and stuff like that. Well, interesting, and we'll get into it again, I said, but interestingly enough, his blood was found, but no fingerprints. So, you know, take from that whatever you want. <laughs> so after Brendan was interrogated several times by the Calumet County investigators that we covered last episode, he was arrested, obviously, after he made those statements and he was charged also with first degree and or p- being party to first degree intentional homicide, sexual assault and mutilation of a corpse. Those three charges were also added to Stevens charges. So now he had like six charges. Okay. Because, you know, presumably based on Brendan's alleged statements they committed these acts together. So they were both responsible for at least those last three charges that I mentioned. So we now have Stephen and Brendan both in jail and awaiting trials. It was decided pretty much right away that they'd be tried separately. And I believe the reasoning for that was that Ken Kratz had wanted Brendan to testify against Stephen. And you can't really do that when you're trying them as co-defendants in the same trial. So he chose to separate them and try them separately, which is a pretty common tactic, really. I mean, it's relatively rare that you have two defendants at the same trial, although we have had it happen in our own life personally with some friends, or a friend. Yeah. But it's not a common tactic. So the trials were scheduled for later in the year. That would be 2006, although I don't think anyone actually went to trial until 2007. But there were numerous pretrial hearings, which, if you know anything about the legal system, is just the way it goes, because the state will file motions and the defense will file motions and, you know, asking for evidence to be withheld or asking for evidence to be turned over or, you know, all those kinds of little technical things that honestly, are kind of, quote, the boring parts of a trial. You know, it's not sensational in any way. It's just all the technical paperwork, back and forth crap. The majority of a trial and case preparation is boring, tedious stuff. It really is. That was one of the things that deterred me from wanting to continue my goal of becoming a lawyer because some of it, I mean, the courtroom stuff's fun. Like the, the actual trials and stuff is very interesting and You know, it's very, you know, life or death and very, you know, in some cases. And but the tedious, obnoxious going through case law and finding precedent setting former verdicts and all that is. Yeah, the the actual the courtroom part is just the final act in a huge play. There's a lot going on before you get there. Oh, yeah. It's far bigger than a three act play. I can tell you that. There's a lot more. I mean, it, and it, it can take, as we very well know, years to deal with all those pretrial motions and hearings and 
this and that and the other thing. I mean, luckily, this one didn't take that long, but some of them can go on for years, especially in the more complicated cases. Years and years and years of before anything even touches before judge before or, you even yeah before anyone who would make any sort of final decisions really has any say in anything you can be years of and you switch judges a lot oftentimes i mean not always but i mean we've seen that happen where you'll go from one judge to another judge to another judge and it's not always because there's actually a problem sometimes it's just scheduling conflicts and so you get thrown to this other judge for some pretrial hearing and it's like I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, but how is that judge who's just at this one hearing able to make any kind of a decision when they know virtually nothing about the case? Because that other judge is the one who's read everything and seen everything. You know, it's it's kind of weird, but I guess I get scheduling is scheduling. What are you going to do? Yeah, I get it. And in, in some cases, I could see it being, well, I know from we know from personal experience, it can be a little bit of a headache because the judge doesn't know he's got to be brought up to speed on some stuff that isn't real clear in the written part of the file. But on the other side of that, it also in some cases might be an advantage because that judge might see something the other judge didn't that... any And the newer judge hasn't had any time to get any preconceived notions or biases regarding anyone involved in the case, really. Exactly. So he's looking look at, at it. it with yeah. fresh eyes. Right, exactly. So it can be a good thing and a bad thing depending on how you look at it. It can also be a really, really bad thing. I've seen that happen. Because, you know, judges are human too. They read newspapers too. If you hear any rumblings in the background, we apologize. It's garbage day, but it's the only day we had for recording. So anyway, during all these pretrial hearings and motions and all and paperwork being filed and all that, Stephen had had a court-appointed attorney initially but as we know, that doesn't always work out in your best interest. So the attorneys that he had, uh, one of whom's name was Stephen Glenn, I've spoken about him before, who was representing Stephen in his wrongful conviction case for the 1985 rape case, gave him some suggestions on some lawyers that he could hire for this new, these new charges, the, the much more serious, you know, murder charges. So he hired two uh, local attorneys, one of whom was uh, Dean Strang, and the other is Jerry Buting. And it was so funny after Making a Murderer came out, and Dean and Jerry, you know, are very influential in the doc. I mean, they're there all the time, you know, because they were his attorneys. They actually have, like, online fan clubs and, you know, memes created that, turned them into basically heartthrobs. It was really, it was really funny. Like people really loved Dean and Jerry and I love Dean and Jerry. Like they were very, very good attorneys. And I personally, I know there's a lot of talk now that maybe they were ineffective and, and other things, but I think they did the best they could with the information that they had at the time. No one's perfect. No one has all the answers and they're human. So they can only do what they can do. Yeah, and hindsight being what well, it is. And they've both recently said that they they wouldn't necessarily disagree with the assertion that they might have been ineffective in some ways, but that their hands were tied often by the judge and, and various other issues they ran into. But we'll get into that more um, when we get deeper into the actual trial phase. 
So he hires Dean and Jerry, and they start doing their own investigation of what may have occurred on October 31st of 2005. They are constantly going out to the Avery property. They're doing, you know, based on Stephen's story, they do kind of recreations of of where she would have been at what time and what, I mean, you know, the, the lawyer stuff, <laughs> you know, they're doing all the lawyer stuff. Um, and that was covered pretty extensively in the documentary, which it was kind of fun, probably the wrong word, but as someone who loves lawyers and, and wanted to be one and all that, it was fun for me to watch the process, which is something that not a lot of documentaries cover. You know, that's what fascinated me about the O.J. Simpson trial when it was on court TV in the 90s when I was just a kid, because you got to see a lot of the process, not just the the trial. And I thought that was really because, you know, reporters were constantly interviewing people and they talked about their process and some people filmed some of their processes. And it was just interesting to watch. So when I saw Making a Murderer and I saw that we got to see that process again, that was very um fascinating and entertaining for me, even though it's not a good situation at all. And it's not an entertaining situation. But I think our audience, if they're here, they like true crime. So I think they get what I'm saying. I'm sure they do. Which is just that sometimes the process is more interesting than the case. That's not the case here. But sometimes that is the case, like the process of how the lawyers do their thing and private investigators do their thing and and gathering information and doing all the discovery and everything can be really fascinating. And then, of course, the courtroom itself, when you get to the actual trial, once all those pretrial stuff is done, it's fascinating. You know, the process is just cool. I wanted to be a lawyer, okay? So, like, to me, that stuff's fascinating. Most people are like, God, that's so boring. I hate watching court cases. I'm like, oh, God, I love it. Are you kidding? It's like adrenaline. I'm like a junkie with a drug. Like, it's just fascinating. I find most of it to be boring. Yes, he does. <laughs> Which is why I was surprised when you suggested doing this podcast, because I'm like, you don't even like true crime, really. I mean, you'll watch some of it with me, but you're not into it like I am and have been for most of my life. So, yeah, but you give me the summaries here. I do. Also, I would like to say, that I know I've seen some comments. I talked about haters last week, but I've still seen a few comments here and there about you left out this and you left out that and this and that and the other thing. Yeah, look, I am only here to summarize and give my opinion and go off on tangents when I get upset about something. But I am not trying to do like a deep dive into all of the analytical ins and outs of every case. If, if I did that on some of these cases, we'd be covering the same case for months on end, and it would be the most boring, obnoxious. Like there's places, if you want the detailed information, there's hundreds, if not thousands of places you can go online to get that information. Yeah, the cases we're doing right now are already well documented, so there's no need to go through right. every minute detail. And even when we get into new cases that aren't as well known, I am not going to necessarily cover every single teeny tiny scrap of details. I will, again, the point of this is to summarize and give our commentary on those summaries. That's the whole point. So please stop coming for me in the comments and about 
leaving stuff out. Yeah, I'm leaving stuff out. I readily admit I'm leaving stuff out. Number one, to save time. Number two, because I, you know, some of the teeny tiny details aren't really that important in the grand scheme of the summary. So yeah, I'm going to leave stuff out. And I may even get stuff wrong on occasion because I'm working from a notebook with like a hundred pages of notes and I sometimes can get, so if I'm wrong, please tell me. Like if I was just flat out like that is not true, go look here. Please tell me that. Do it nicely, but tell me. But don't come at me going, you left this out and you left that out. Yeah, I left out a crap ton of stuff and I know it. I did it on purpose. Well, and these things could get really long and really boring if you went into too much detail. There's, you, there's a level of detail that keeps it entertaining and informative. Right. And then there's too much. Like I said, if you want details, there's whole websites dedicated strictly to all of the evidence and case files and court transcripts and all that stuff on the internet. And I know that because I've read them. So you can go there and read for hours on end to your little heart's content and get every detail that I left out. But this is a summary, not a documentary where I'm trying to make sure. And even documentarians have to leave stuff out. I mean, all the time. (laughs) because their documentary, unless it's a series, is, you know, hour, maybe two hours long. And even in a series with Making a Murderer, total, both seasons, 20 hours. We're talking about thousands, if not tens of thousands of pages of court documentation and transcripts and all that stuff. They had to cut stuff out too. So for time. So that's kind of, I just wanted to make that point in case I hadn't made it clear before. We're just here to summarize and commentate on the summary. That's all. If com- is commentate a word? Is that a word? You know, I don't know if it's a technically really, a word. Well, that's okay. Did you hear the dictionary just this week actually put the word irregardless in the dictionary? There's some people who are like legitimately angry about that. Irregardless is not a word. I've used that word my entire life. I know technically it wasn't a word, but I've used it, but now it is. So, well, and a lot of the words in the English dictionary come out of common use. Once they become a common use item, they de facto become part of the English language. That right. is the whole English language, basically. basically yeah, that's kind of how it came to be in the first place. And yes, commentate is a word. Yes. Okay. I didn't want to sound stupid. So that's good. Commentate. Good. Okay. Well, I figured because commentary commentate and commentary right yeah to provide commentary see i'm not as dumb as i look okay anyway where was i (laughs) see i went off on a tangent and now i can't remember where i was so one thing that happened early on it was the day after brendan's initial the big interrogation and confession that we played a clip from last episode The one that is devastating and I hate even talking about. So the next day, Ken Kratz, the, again, Calumet County District District Attorney who had been uh, assigned as special prosecutor on this case, and Sheriff Poggle, the Calumet County Sheriff, who was supposed to be, his, his department was supposed to be the sole investigators on the case, but we know for a fact that is not what occurred, but we'll, we'll get back to that At later. At least not for the important parts of the case. 
it's just interesting how every pertinent piece of uh, evidence, quote unquote evidence, and incriminating whatever, there was always a Manitowoc County official there when they weren't supposed to be. It's just suspicious. You know, I mean, even even if you are someone who believes Stephen and Brendan are guilty, that's still suspicious. Right? Strange coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences. So, I mean, it's fishy. Anyway, after Brendan's confession, quote unquote confession, the next day, Sheriff Poggle and Ken Kratz held a press conference. And... I still, I've looked and looked and looked and looked and I can only find clips. I can't find the whole entire 21 minute press conference, but the brief summary would be that Ken Kratz did most of the talking. No surprise, because he's big on showboating. I mean, like big on, he loves the camera. He does everything he can to be in front of the camera. He's constant. He still to this day is constantly on Twitter, dragging Stephen, dragging people who believe in his innocence. I mean, he's j- he won't give it up. He loves the spotlight. He's not even a lawyer anymore. He got freaking shit canned. I'll get to that later. So, <laughs> those of you who who know know what I'm talking about. But they had this press conference, and he started it with basically telling all the parents watching it was probably like five o'clock in the afternoon four o'clock in the afternoon somewhere in there so kids would have been home from school at that point and all that and he gets on there on the camera and he basically is like so if there's any kids in the audience you probably don't want them to watch this because it's it's graphic and this and that and the other and this big dramatic you know like don't let your children watch the television right now send them out of the room like it was this big dramatic bullshit i yeah i've never seen anyone do that he then proceeds to go into not only saying that brendan had confessed to assisting stephen with killing teresa halbach but he actually tells the story so he he's he gets really he leans in and he's looking at the camera and he's like on the evening of October 31st 2005 Brendan Dassey gets home from school at approximately 3:15 gets the mail sees a piece of mail for his uncle Stephen and walks over to his house he knocks on the door and when Stephen answers the door he sees his 45 year old half naked sweaty uncle standing in the I mean like this is this is this man this is Ken Kratz. Th- this whole thing just explains to you who Ken Kratz is as a person. He's playing a story, painting a picture in people's minds. He's a storyteller more than... Oh, yeah. I guess you kind of... That works well for being a lawyer in closing and opening statements, I guess. It's awesome for open and close. Awesome. But the problem is... And it doesn't end there, though. And he's taken into the... Now, I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly what he said. But because honestly, it's nauseating. Because he sits there and he's like... He follows his sweaty uncle into the back bedroom where he sees a bound and naked Teresa Halbach laying on Stephen Avery's bed. 
Stephen Avery's uncle commands him to rape Teresa. And he does so. I mean, like, blah, blah. And then they slit her throat and stabbed her in the stomach. And on live television. That's pretty twisted. Not only is it twisted. I wish that's all it was. But he has just tainted the jury pool in the entire state of Wisconsin. Right? Well, he's definitely tainted a good portion of the jury pool. There is no way at the, after that press conference, Stephen or Brendan can get a fair trial anywhere in the state of Wisconsin. It was revolting. And as far as I can tell from the research I have done and the knowledge I have from wanting to be a lawyer my whole life, was at minimum a complete breach of ethics and at worst, criminal breach of ethics. There seems to be quite a few parallels between this and the West Memphis case. Why do you think this one resonated with me so much when I first, I mean, remember, you probably, I mean, you remember when I first watched this several years ago when the first season came out, I was obsessed with it. I couldn't stop watching it. I couldn't stop talking about it. I could, I mean, like it, because of that, because I'm like, my God, it's like West Memphis all over again. Although even worse, really. Yeah, but there's a lot of parallels. The, uh, you've got people that confess that are lower in IQ. Then you've got and teenagers. Don't forget teenagers. Young, naive, and lower IQ. Get them to confess so you can go after the rest. Then blast it to the media to taint the jury pool. I mean, but Ken, the way he did it was even more egregious because at least in the West Memphis case, all that did was the typed up transcript got leaked to a newspaper. This was a public live television press conference in the middle of the afternoon with descriptions of shit that did not happen. (laughs) It didn't happen. He's got more flair than the other guy. Way more flair. I'll give Ken that, man. That that dude is all personality. It's all bad, but he's all personality. I mean, he, ugh, he's so gross. He's just gross. There's no other way to put it. He's gross. And he's a horrible attorney. Like, there's just, I, seriously, like, you're going to get up there and you're going to taint your entire jury pool. Well, sure, of course he is, because he wants to win. He's a good prosecutor. No, he's not. Well, I guess maybe he is. I don't know. He's he gross. won. He was. He was. He's not a lawyer anymore. He's not allowed to be a lawyer anymore. Should I say why? I should probably just say why, because it's not really relevant to this case anyway. So uh, Ken Kratz had to retire early because after Stephen and Brendan's cases were all done and all, you know, and and they were going through, you know, the usual appellate drawn out crappy situation, he was sexting the estranged wife of a wife beater that he had been prosecuting. And, and I mean, sexting. It was nasty, gross. It was just gro- like gross. And this is a young woman. She was in her 20s. And Ken Kratz was like, I don't know, 50 or some shit. I can't remember. So completely unethical, inappropriate, and technically illegal behavior. He, at first he denied it. And then, of course, 
a reporter, a savvy ass reporter who talked to the woman involved, got all the text messages. So like, okay, Ken, whatever you say. (laughs) So he ended up having to step down, but it really, he was shit canned. He was fired, but they let him step away instead of being thrown away. Not really sure why, because it would have been more fun to watch than throw him away, but you know, whatever. Well, it's partially damage control for the... Yeah, for the office. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, the whole office wasn't sleazy, just him. So he had to kiss his career goodbye, which honestly is wonderful because we don't need him prosecuting anyone else and getting innocent, more innocent people thrown in prison. And we certainly don't need him sexting 20-year-old girls. You know, that's just gross. So, um, yeah, so he he's no longer a lawyer, but he still, to this day, can't keep his freaking mouth shut about Stephen. He even wrote a book about it. Got to make the money. Make that money. Make that coin, Ken. He made himself famous and now he's got to make the money. For all the wrong reasons. But famous is famous. So, yeah, he's he's just gross. He's a gross individual and I can't stand him. Every time I watch anything with him in it, interview, making murder, doesn't matter, whatever it is. Because I watch whenever I hear something's coming out about Steven, I watch it. And 99% of the time, there's Ken all over my fucking screen, looking sweaty and slimy as ever. No, seriously, he sweats a lot. It's gross. And (laughs) (laughs) you've got definitely got a gross thing with him, don't you? He's so gross. (laughs) He's not just physically gross. He has no soul. You remember in, in, in the West Memphis Three case when the, the closing arguments, when he was saying that, you know, you look at Damien over there and he hasn't got a soul in there, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Oh, Damien has a soul. Ken Kratz does not. <laughs> Seriously. Everyone who's seen it knows what I'm talking about. And even the people who think Stephen is guilty think Ken is slimy. It's really funny. Like, they'll be guilty, 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 but Ken Kratz is a fucking bleh. Like, it's so funny. <laughs> because everyone can see, it's just, the point is everyone can see it. Like, he's just, he's gross, and he will not stay off the damn cameras. Even today, he won't stay off the damn cameras. Like, he's, he has to talk about Steven all the time. He's obsessed with Steven. Well, now, so now that he's lost that job, that's all he's got. I guess, which, I mean, under normal circumstances, I'd feel sorry for someone like that, but I don't. So, anyway, enough about sleazy, sweaty, nasty Ken Kratz. Okay, although we're going to talk about him a lot, so, you know, I'll try not to call him sweaty every time I talk about him. It's hard, though. It's hard. So, in the process of doing all of these pretrial hearings, there's, you know, there's ones for Stephen, there's ones for Brendan. Like I said, the trials were being kept separate. There was this intention on Brendan's lawyers. I was going to say behalf, but that's not right. He had obviously the intention of having Brendan testify against Stephen, but Brendan had always insisted he was not going to do that because he had already attempted many times to retract his statements to the to the detectives. But it never like they never let him actually retract it. Well, do they ever like let was, you retract a confession? Yes. When? There's been many cases where they've retracted their confession and it wasn't allowed to be used because they retracted it. Many, 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 many times. 
Oh, I, I guess I just always hear the cases where they can't. That was what West Memphis 3 case. We just talked about it. Jesse's confession was never used in Damien and Jason's trial because A, he refused to testify and B, he had retracted his confession. Oh, yes. So the only trial his confession was used in was his own. And even then it was iffy if it should have been used because he had, again, like I said, retracted it many times. And Brendan did the same thing. He had tried to retract his statements numerous times. So after one of the pretrial hearings on um, May 13th, Brendan had gotten a court-appointed attorney. And the court-appointed attorney was named Len Kaczynski. He is at the same level as Ken Kratz, but less sweaty. (laughs) He is also gross. And you'll see why in a minute. Mr. Kaczynski hired a private investigator named Michael O'Kelly. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar with the legal, the way it works, oftentimes both sides, the prosecution and the defense, will hire private investigators who are usually former cops, typically, not always, but it's a lot easier to get into that line of work if you have been an officer of the law in some way or a lawyer or something before. And in some areas it's required. Some, yeah, not all, but some. They often hire these private investigators to do exactly what the title suggests, and that's investigate. But they each do their own investigating through the lens of the prosecution or through or they're supposed to through the lens of the defense, meaning the private investigator, if they're hired by the defense, this is not in all cases, but because they don't always hire a private investigator, but it's common, very, very common. We know that also from personal experience. And if the defense hires a private investigator, their job is to go out and investigate through the lens of the defense of the client, meaning they're looking for evidence of innocence or to disprove evidence of guilt. That's their job. And if the prosecution hires the investigator, their job is to continue to look for more evidence of guilt, obviously. So that's what they do. So Len hires Mr. O'Kelly to investigate. And Mr. O'Kelly spends time, quite a bit of time, with the Dassey Avery family. So Brendan's family, Stephen's family, you know, because they're the same family. So he spends a lot of time with them. And the reports that he wrote were so horrific. And had zero basis in fact. It's, it's ridiculous. I'll, hold on, because this pertains later during Brendan's trial. But so after one of the hearings, Len Kaczynski decides that he wants his investigator, Michael O'Kelly, to go speak to Brendan alone and have him give a formal, a new formal statement because he had retracted the other statements he had made and gone back to his original story, which we talked about in the last episode, that he has stuck to the entire time, which was the timeline of events when he got home from school on October 31st, which we, like I said, we discussed it last time. Yeah, the ones he stated before the right. police got to him. Exactly. 
he had retracted his other statements and had gone back to that story. So for whatever reason, Len decides, Len Kaczynski, his lawyer, decides that he wants a new official statement and Michael O'Kelly is the guy to get it. You, you would be thinking, rightfully so, that um, whatever Brendan says is the official statement that they are going to take because their job is to defend Brendan. So if he says that he didn't do anything, then that's the statement they submit to the court, right? Well, they're supposed to do what's best for their client. So, right? I would think so. Said, I, you, I'm not a, a lawyer, but I would think so. If you said right, you'd be wrong. Because when Brendan was brought into the room with Mr. O'Kelly, there was some pleasantries, but there's video of this, by the way, so you, could, you guys can look it up if you want. It would be the May 13th uh, Michael O'Kelly, Brendan Dassey interview. There's a bunch of them on YouTube, I think. Yeah, there is. So when Michael O'Kelly set up the room before Brendan got there and he put up some folding tables and on the folding tables, he placed pictures of Teresa Pictures of Teresa's car on the Avery Salvage Yard property. Pictures of various locations around the town that Teresa was from that had blue ribbons on trees, which was the ribbons that were placed while Teresa was missing. You know, that's a common thing that people do. They'll to to so that when people see it, they think, "Oh yeah, Teresa, I gotta gotta keep my eyes peeled for Teresa." You know, and then after if like what happened with Teresa, she is found deceased. The person is found deceased later. Oftentimes the ribbons remain as kind of a, a makeshift memorial. So he had taken a photo. He'd gone out and taken a photo of one of those blue ribbons that was in front of a tree or that was on a tree in front of Teresa's church that she had attended with her family. And then one of the blue ribbons was on the table. So you're thinking, what is this? What? Why? Like, I don't, why? You know, because this is his lawyer and his private investigator. This isn't the prosecution. Why is all this Teresa swag all over everything? You know what I mean? Like, that's just weird, right? So, and if you think that's weird, you're correct. <laughs> because Brendan comes in and O'Kelly says, I need you to. Now, again, when I say someone says something, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember exactly what they said, but it's the gist that he wanted him to write down a new statement. So Brendan says, OK. And O'Kelly hands him the paper that he's supposed to write it on and he writes out his statement. And it is the exact same story that he told the police originally, which is that he got off the bus. He went to his home. He stayed in his home. He received a couple of phone calls. He ate some food. Stephen called around seven to go do a bonfire for Halloween. He went over there and that was that. That's not the whole thing. But, you know, that's the basic. That's the basic story. That, right. Yeah. Same story he told the original officers when he was asked after Teresa disappeared. Before they even knew she was dead or not. Just when she disappeared. Same story. So what'd they say? Oh, O'Kelly starts laying into him you you know this isn't true you know this is a lie he's playing the role of the cops now oh yeah you know what it was exact you watch this and you're like he's his own private investigator is interrogating him and he's doing where is len 
Nowhere. Len's not there. The lawyer isn't there. It's the private investigator just only. The, just Brendan and the private investigator locked in a room alone. So I have to ask, was this private investigator a former police officer in the area? I don't know. I didn't Had actually he worked think, for that police department much. I didn't think to look that up, to be honest. Because it seems to me like the maybe there's some uh, ulterior motivation going on there. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Because well, that is not normal behavior. <laughs> well, and so, so he he keeps telling him, you know, that's not true. He starts showing him items on the table. Uh. Mr. O'Kelly starts getting emotional a few times, like, not like angry, but like, you know, like tearing up kind of (laughs) he did it on the stand, too. I can't wait to talk about that. So this guy is mentally unstable. That's my opinion. That's my take on him. He's he should not be in any branch of law enforcement because he's clearly not mentally stable. I'm pretty sure he's retired by now, though, because he looks like he's 112 years old. So I'm sure he's retired by now. But thank God. But but anyway, so he makes Brendan write out this new version. And he's basically doing what so he, of course, knows he's watched the original interrogation stuff. So he knows the story Brendan spun with the help of the police back in in March. Right. So he he knows that probably memorized it, to be honest. So let me guess. He's feeding him that story to give a new statement. Right. And has him draw pictures of like Teresa's body, like tied to Stephen's bed and left. So he's doing one worse. Well, no, the cops had done that, too. Oh, okay. not in the not in the May or the March statement, but in later statements, they had made him do that, too. They're just fucking over and over again traumatizing this child with shit he clearly knew nothing about, you know? So the whole thing is insane. And so right after he gets this new written, quote, confession, he calls Len Kaczynski, the lawyer, and he says, you know, Oh, it went, you know, I'm here with Brendan. It went fine, blah, blah, blah. And I don't know what Len was saying on the other side of the phone, obviously, because you can only hear one hit uh, O'Kelly's side of the conversation. But he's basically like, oh, OK, do you want me to call uh, Wiegert and Fassbender and arrange a new meeting? So he hangs up with and then there's, you know, silence for a minute. And then he hangs up with Len and he calls Wiegert and Fassbender. I think he calls Fassbender. And he talks to Detective Fassbender and he says, uh, you know, Brendan wants to talk to you. Brendan doesn't want to fucking talk to him again. He's like, Brendan wants to talk to you again. Can he meet with you in the morning after breakfast? Because they have, you know, scheduled mealtimes at the jail. So not only is Brendan talking to this private investigator who's supposed to be working for him, not against him, alone, without Len, he is then taken into a room at the jail the next morning, right after breakfast, with Wiegert and Fassbender, without his lawyer. What? Len arranged the meeting for just the detectives and Brendan. Where the hell is the lawyer? This is his job. Sitting in his damn office drinking a Mai Tai? I don't fucking know. 
I know. The look on your face right now is how I sat in front of my TV for like an hour. I was shocked. Any lawyer worth his salt would not allow his client to be interviewed without being present. It was one thing when it was their private investigator, because that's their private investigator, you know. So I understand maybe letting him meet alone with the private investigator because he's supposed to be on Team Brendan. The point I'm trying to make here is nobody was on fucking Team Brendan. Nobody. Except Barb. And she didn't know what to think because she's getting told by the cops what Brendan is saying, this terrible, horrible, evil, awful things. And then... Brendan's saying, but they got to my head. That's not really true. I didn't really do that. You know, Stephen didn't really do that. But she's so tore up inside. She doesn't even know what to think because and then Brendan. So hold on. Hold on. So in this Saturday morning after breakfast interrogation by Wiegert and Fassbender, they do the exact same thing they did on May 1st, which is feed him shit and pull another fucking story out of him which I'd like to point out had some details different from the first four stories he told them. Like every time he told the story, shit changed. What is the key? What is the absolute key that any good attorney will tell you is the identifying factor of a false confession? The details change. The details constantly change. It's the same. That's the same motive that, or same method they use to determine if a, if a defendant is lying in the first place right. is, do the details change? If they do, then they're lying. So the same should hold true on the other side. Right. His first story didn't change. His second story, the one they coerced out of second, him, third, changes. Fourth, sixth, twelfth, those all changed because they weren't fucking true. You know? So they do the same damn thing. And then, and then, and oh, they yelled at him several times because he wasn't, I don't know telling them what they wanted fast enough. I don't know. It was really, it was, I, that was the second three hour interrogation that I was just sitting there with my head in my hands going, I can't fucking do this anymore. (laughs) I kind of tuned out some of it because I just, it just, it's so painful to watch. And And nobody's sitting there with him. I'm not the one who went through it. And it's so pain. And he's not, he's not my family. He's not, I don't know him from Adam, but I love him and I hurt for him, you know? Anyway, the point is, so here's this story that he keeps spinning that they are basically force feeding him that makes zero sense. There's no evidence to back up any of it. And that's the biggest thing to me is like you are getting him to tell you this story that has absolutely zero physical evidence backing it up. I mean, if if she had had her throat slit in Stephen's bedroom, there would be blood all over that bedroom. If she had been stabbed in the stomach in Stephen's bedroom, there would be blood all over that bedroom. If Brendan had been there and raped Teresa and slit her throat at Stephen's supposed orders, his DNA would have been all over Stephen's house. What anyone like to chime in on what was missing inside Stephen's house? All the appropriate evidence. Any evidence any if she'd been shot in the head in steven's garage there'd be blood all over that garage they claim he had five days to clean it up really he had five days to clean it up and then somehow miraculously put all the dust back 
shot in the head. That that's high velocity blood splatter. There'd be that's... high velocity spatter at least on something in there. And there was none. 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 <laughs> and that's what convinced me. You know, it's funny. A lot of people hear about this case, watch Making a Murderer, and you have a pretty even smattering of people who are like me who believe that they are innocent, and you have people who are also who we like to call guilters. I was on the fence initially, and I always am in these cases because you never know. Not everyone who claims to be wrongfully convicted is, of course. So I am skeptical. And I was, I remained skeptical. Even though things were starting to look a little fishy, even though things were starting to be a little weird, and I couldn't quite figure out why, when we got to the point where Brendan's story of slitting her throat, stabbing her, raping her, all this stuff, then shooting her in the head in the garage, which, by the way, he never said, the police did. But yet there's absolutely no blood or DNA from Teresa or Brendan in the house, in the garage. No blood, no staining. Stephen's mattress had no stains on it. The only DNA they found in Stephen's house was Stephen's, and that's because he freaking lives there. So that's when I knew they didn't do it. They said somehow they determined that she was shot in the head in the garage without any evidence to point that way. The only evidence they had that she was shot in the head were some of the skull bone fragments that were found in the burn pit with her with the bones that were in there. They had been told that they were broken skull bones, and that there were odd uh, circular patterned divots in them, which would have been from bullet wounds. They found in the bones, in kind of trying to put them back together, they, which they couldn't do because way too many of them were completely missing, still haven't been found. Um, I'm just trying to figure out where they would have come up with it happened in the garage. I legitimately believe they just pulled it out of their ass because they didn't have any evidence of of gun sh- of of gunshots happening inside the house. So they were like, "Well, she had to be shot somewhere. Where can we freaking? Well, there's it's a rural property, and." They shoot a lot because it's a rural property. And, you know, if you live out in the country, you know how that works. Like people are out shooting on their own property all the time. We're surrounded by farms and we're constantly out where we are in Oregon. And we constantly hear the farmers and their kids out shooting in the fields and stuff. Um, So there were bullet casings like all over the property. But there happened to be quite a few like around the garage. So I think they just went, oh, there's a crap ton of bullet casings over there. So we'll just pick over there. Like, I really honestly feel like they were just pulling the whole entire thing out of their butt. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense to to say it was the garage when you have no evidence at all that it was the garage. You have no evidence it was the garage. Oh, and then, oh, hold on, no. Okay, so there was no evidence she was in the garage, right? At all. None. Nada. Zilch. They'd searched it several times. No evidence. Nothing. They searched it again. Months later. Months. What do they find? A smushed bullet, so it was a spent bullet, with DNA that they claim is Teresa's under like a generator or something in the corner of the garage. 
Now. <laughs> okay, so they're saying that they found the bullet. Months and months later. Months and months later after they missed it on the original searches. Right. But yet somehow they magically managed to clean up every drop of blood in the entire they house. Even, they even used, what are those, um, a jackhammer? You know, the thing when they, they break up the street with? They took a freaking jackhammer in there in the original searches and pulled chunks of concrete out of the floor where there were cracks because they're like, oh, well, if she was killed here and they cleaned it up, then blood would have seeped into nothing. So the world's best forensic cleaning job and they missed the bullet. <laughs> right. I've I've spoken to online because I'm I'm a member of several groups who discuss this case. A lot. And uh, some of the members of the group are work for those uh, crime scene cleaning companies. I think I've mentioned this before, but a lot of them said that's when they knew, too. Like the same one I said, there's no evidence. And the, they were like, we do this for a living, right? We get paid quite well to go clean up these scenes, you know, after the fact. And we could never get it ever with all of our expertise. I mean, we, they get heavy training for that because it's hazmat and all that stuff. All of their expertise, all of the products they use, all of the commercial grade chemicals that they use to clean up these things to make them sanitary again, you know, so that you could presumably live there again if, you know, um, even to the point of like having to sometimes tear up floors and do all kinds of stuff just to, you know, because the subflooring gets destroyed, if body lays there too long, it's not pretty. So all kinds of stuff. And they were like, there is absolutely no, we couldn't even get it to where luminol wouldn't pick up something to where swabbing wouldn't pick up something in a crack. And we know what we're doing. These are two, forgive me, hillbilly, undereducated, low IQ. This is no criticism. I love them. It's not a criticism. I'm just saying. These are two guys, one a teenager, one a 40-year-old man who spent 18 years of his life in prison. So there's a lot of like world knowledge he doesn't currently have somehow managed to forensically clean a what would have been horrendously bloody crime scene and leave absolutely no traces. It's not possible. It, it, it would be... Don't, don't even try to justify... It's not possible. When you have a forensic cleaner telling you that they can't even get it that clean, it's not possible. Not without it being obvious. You'd have to tear the whole... And how did they put the dust back? There was dust all over his house and bedroom because he obviously wasn't someone who cleaned his house regularly, which is fine. I don't either. But... And the, the garage was covered in dust and a very thin... Everything was covered in this really thin layer of, like, legitimate dirt because there was so much dust piled on it that it had collected everything else. How did they put that back? So, I cannot figure this... Even if you leave the dust out, they would have had to, in order to do what they did without leaving any evidence, they would have had to have one of those like horror movie preparation scenes where every part of the house <laughs> was, was lined Dexter. in plastic. It was freaking Dexter. They cover everything in plastic sheeting and duct tape. <laughs> yeah, Stephen Avery would have to have been Dexter, which means he would have had to have planned it. Yeah, it would have had to have been planned in advance and carefully done. And somehow, also, if, okay, and let's just say that was the case. Let's pretend that Stephen is Dexter for a minute. 
I know you haven't seen Dexter, but it's an awesome show. The audience will know. But or if you've seen Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix, which you have, when they have their kill room in the in the um, storage, empty storage unit and they cover everything with plastic and duct right. like that. That's what Dexter did when he would kill people too. that exact same thing. So let's pretend that Stephen is Dexter for a moment, shall we? And he planned this. He knew she was coming. That's true. We know that. And so he planned this out and he put duct, uh, plastic sheeting and duct tape all over everything. First of all, where did he get all that plastic sheeting? I haven't seen any evidence of receipts that he went and bought a bunch of plastic sheeting or tape or any. So anyway, that's besides the point. But let's pretend. So he does all of that, right? And somehow he hornswoggles Brendan into this at the last minute. I'm not, you know, I, so who knows? But he does all of that. And he, he plans it and he rapes her and he kills her and he does all these horrific things to her. But there's no evidence because everything was covered in plastic. First of all, where did the plastic go? Bonfire. Okay, sure. All right, I'll accept that. Except there was no evidence of melted plastic on any of the stuff in the bonfire. But we'll, we'll just, we'll go with that. Why, on God's green earth, if he was smart enough to plan this attack, commit this attack and leave not a trace of evidence or even evidence of a struggle anywhere on his property or in his house or in his garage. Why would he burn her body in his own burn pit behind his own house like a fucking moron? If he was so smart to plan it and get it to where nothing, it wouldn't leave a trace, why did he leave the biggest trace in his own bonfire? Also, where's the rest of the bones? Why is less than 50% of her body accounted for? So he's, he's only half an evil genius. <laughs> so he's Dr. Evil? The hapless evil genius? Is that what we're saying? Yeah. There you go. He, oh, uh, Lord. He, he learned this much, but not the other part. So after O'Kelly and, and Len do this to Brendan with the and get him to talk to the investigators again. And he basically gives the same freaking statement. It's time to start preparing for trial. Stephen's trial goes first, I think. I'm pretty sure. And, you know, it just, it continues to just get uglier and uglier from here. So, which makes these things so hard to cover sometimes because you just get so emotionally invested and, so it, especially when you really, truly, genuinely believe the person's innocent. I think it would be different if I was covering one where I just wasn't sure. Maybe I could distance myself from it more. But on this one, I'm like, I'm pretty damn sure. Yeah, it's, I'm sure it probably will be. And it's a lot easier for me because I'm yes, learning about not, it now. I'm not emotionally invested not in emotionally this yet. You're not emotionally invested in it at all. So, um, yeah. So, uh. I'm losing my train of thought again. So, okay, we're going to end it here. I do want to say one more time, happy birthday, Stephen. Um, I hope you're having as good a day as you can have under the circumstances. And please, please, if anyone in Stephen's family hears this, please tell him that uh, we here at True Crime and Consequences podcast support him and Brendan. And we hope that one day the truth will actually be revealed and that Stephen and Brendan can come home and be with their families because quite frankly, that's where they deserve to be. And Stephen should not have to spend one more birthday behind bars. So um, my love to you all. Thank you so much for sticking with us and listening. Um, also, real quick, I would love some case ideas. So 
Um, if you guys want to email us at uh, truecrimeandconsequences at gmail.com, I would really appreciate it. And just shoot me some ideas. If there's an interesting case you've heard about, a local case in your community that maybe didn't get much press, I'd like to try to keep it to wrongful convictions. But if there's, you know, something that's just super, super interesting, I mean, I'll read about anything. You know, just if you send it to me, I may not cover it on the podcast, but I will read about it for sure. So because I'm just interested in that sort of thing. So if you have some case suggestions, um, I'm trying to, after this, not do such well-known cases for a while because I'd like to learn about new ones, like, you know, because there's new ones all the time. So if if you have one, please email me. You can also comment on the Instagram, which is at True Crimes and Consequences. You can also tweet me at TCNC Podcast on Twitter. So you can send me a DM or you can even just uh, send me a link or whatever you want to do to an article or however it works. Just you can reach me on Facebook. All the links are available on our, where are they all available at? I know they're all available on the Instagram. I will put them in the show notes. Oh, I yeah. finally figured out how to do show notes properly. So I will get those <laughs> in the show notes for this episode and future episodes. And we can put a contact page on the uh, web page there. Okay. Yeah. That's what I'd like to do. Cause I'd love to get some more um, like audience input on cases we should cover. And because it'll help me learn about cases I probably otherwise wouldn't have even known about. Cause if you Google wrongful conviction cases, holy mother of. Between the confirmed ones and the alleged ones, it's an endless list, which is honestly super depressing. But yeah, so if you have any cool cases in your town, if you've heard of something interesting that you want to hear about, um, please let me know. And then maybe somewhere along the line, I can put something on the social media so you guys can vote on cases that we might cover in the future. Because I really would like to get you guys involved as much as possible. Also, if you do that and I use your case, you'll get a producer credit for that episode and any future episodes you would contribute to. Also, other ways to support us would just be to share, you know, share this podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. Just, you know, share that. Tell your friends about it. If you know they're interested in true crime, send them our way. That sort of thing. We also do have a PayPal, which is paypal.me backslash kikiathena79 where you can donate to the cause, which would allow us to devote more time and resources to the podcast. But no pressure whatsoever, by the way. You, there is no, no obligation for you to give us any money. It would just allow us to devote more time and effort into the podcast, which would be great, but it's not required whatsoever. There are plenty of free ways to support us that are just as valuable. So, And one of the biggest is share, share, share. Yeah, please. We just, you know, we'd like to grow our audience and the bigger of an audience that we have, the more case suggestions I can get and the more interesting cases we can bring you and I can learn about, which honestly, that's mainly what I'm excited about is learning about cases I didn't know anything about because they're interesting and I always wanted to be a lawyer. Yes, I'm going to say that in like every episode, I always wanted to be a lawyer because I did. It's the truth. And that's kind of one of the things that made me interested in this. So anyway, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for the support. We will continue on to the trial phase of the Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey case next week, Sunday at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening and we love you. Bye. Bye. 
ultimately the system works. Consequences 